Hello everyone and welcome to episode 116 of Dominaris Judgment, a mostly weekly, mostly constructed matter podcast. I'm Dom Harvey, I'm here with Ari Lags and uh, I'm not so back, uh, the, the, the so really is missing from this whole experience, but I am back and, and here to dissect uh, what went wrong, what went right and uh, I, I guess everything in between. I mean, I guess my upfront question is which one hit you harder, the Magic Fest or Vegas itself? Uh, well, Vegas was uh, a lot, to put it mildly. This was my first uh, time uh, experiencing Las Vegas, and uh, glad to have done it once. Not sure I have any real desire to do it ever again, but uh, it seems like Worlds may just be in Vegas as a fixture going forward now, so I, I guess I am hoping I get to experience it again and again and again. Yeah, I think I have also been there exactly once for GP uh, Vegas 2017. What year? Death Shadow was 2017, right? Whatever year the Death Shadow... This is the one with the with uh, Daniel Wong's Triple Sleeve Turns deck, where, like, Wesco top-aided with Leon and Arbiter, because that's just what happened. That's, like, enough details to figure it out, but yeah. If, if that gives you any idea of, like, my opinions on Vegas, of, like, I've just described the entire Magic event and stayed away from anything about being in Vegas itself, I think that was, like my limit on that city might be negative one times. But I would hope to be there for Worlds. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you might have to be more specific with uh, which tournament Daniel Wong did well with his quad-sleeved uh, taking turns deck in, because there was a shockingly large number of those, like more than there has any right to be, uh, honestly. But honestly, I'm surprised that you were never enticed there, not by the sights and sounds of Vegas itself, but just by, you know having some like gigantic limited gp or something there every year i'd have thought the the pro points grind would have uh, at least forced you there if not uh, entice you there i honestly could not tell you i know one of them i almost booked a ticket to and then had to cancel plans like right before i made them and then the was it there was another giant limited gp out there where i just i i just had no plans of going i could not tell you when where or why I just recall that there was a second GP Vegas, and I was just like, nah. Yeah, stepping out of my arrival gate to just be greeted by a bank of slot machines in the actual airport, that 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 really gives you the gist of the place right away. Like, it prepares you for what you're getting yourself in for. Uh, and then beyond that, I mean, there are just literally slot machines basically everywhere that you could put a slot machine, which is uh, certainly a choice. Um, and to some extent, I think I was almost given a classier or better picture of what Vegas is or could be by stuff like World Series of Poker coverage and so on, where uh, they, they show you the inside of the, the poker room at the rear or whatever, and you, you know there's some uh, some people really living the lows as well as the highs in there. Like, you, you're not uh, immune to that. But just the sheer emptiness of both walking past people just gambling their, their time and their money away, uh, in some cases having quite little of both left uh, on these slot machines, and then also walking past the banks of empty slot machines late at night, where I, I'm not sure which of those is more soul-destroying, but, but both of them make a strong case for that. Yeah, you see, uh, I've, have you done that in Atlantic City? Because you just it feels deeper there. Oh, I've heard that's the one... Uh, magic venue that is somehow more of a desolate wasteland in that regard than uh than vegas is yeah yeah it's like vegas but they they don't pretend to like offer alternate activities though i guess the, you could describe like a new jersey italian sandwich as an alternate activity which is honestly potentially higher than my enjoyment of vegas is like you know you walk down the street and i guess it's probably like 11 dollars now for more italian sandwich than you could ever eat in a day but like 
at least to me, that's a bigger attraction than the rest of what Vegas has to offer. I don't know about anyone else. Yeah, it's like if you, you took the Valley Forge Casino Resort and extended that to an entire city that was artificially dumped in the middle of the desert for some reason. Uh, th- that is the hellscape that I was uh, stuck in for uh, for the last uh, week and a half. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's about the gathering, and the gathering was good, but the actual location for that was, uh, you know, left something to be desired. So certainly there have been places I've been to for magic or just in general where I can tell like yeah this isn't for me I don't really fit in here but I would like to you know I'm kind of jealous of the people who do with Vegas says yeah I'm not uh the target audience for this and I god I hope I never am yep okay I'm, I'm glad we're both in extreme agreement about that city I am going to be taking an international flight in about uh nine ten days and I figured uh, well, at least given the, the retroactive reports, I feel like I was right. But the idea of, like, going to Vegas and getting sick and then trying to, like, get well enough in order to, like, fly somewhere afterwards doesn't seem like a great plan. It definitely lots of reports of uh, COVID and other uh, plague-adjacent uh, diseases that have uh, people have brought back to their native locales from Vegas. So I would definitely recommend people uh, exercise caution on that front as well. Uh, having having said that, though, there was a lot of fun stuff that happened over the weekend, a lot of magic. Uh, not so fun for me, given my pretty poor performance uh, just on all fronts there, but uh, a lot to cover, a lot of magic to cover, and just a lot of stuff to sink our teeth into this week. So uh, I think as we did last time for Barcelona, the, the the maybe the best entry point for this is to go over the predictions which uh, you and Jarvis bestowed upon us last week and see how well those hold up. Uh, so where, where do you think the best place to start is? I I mean, we just sort of said Esper was the best for everything and Esper was the best. Like, we was it? The four predictions were like the most played deck, the winning deck, the best performer among the like top four archetypes, and then what does Team Handshake play? And the answer was Esper, 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 and then Technically, we guessed the wrong type of Esper. So uh, th- this is not as extreme as uh, last year's Worlds, where the answer to basically any probabilistic question is just Esper, because it was 70% of the field. This time around, uh, Esper midrange was 20%, and I know that there, there are often these criticisms of how they fudge numbers a bit to make the metagame seem more diverse than it is. I do think that... Uh, Esper Midrange and the winning Esper Legends deck that uh, very deserving champion John Emmanuel Dupra uh, took home the trophy with, those are different enough decks that it certainly does make sense to group those separately and uh, we'll explain why that is uh, in due course. Um, and then those between them, you get to like 30-ish percent, which is a lot, but still a fine metagame share for two of the most popular decks. And there was a lot going on beneath the surface uh, underneath all of that. Whereas last year, yeah, it was Esper and then Nathan somehow as the o- literally the only Grixis person just cleaning up uh, in that wake. Yeah, I mean, a lot of our other results were kind of just like biasing whether we thought the white cards or the black cards would show up more. Um, and it turns out the answer was that like the domain deck sat next to the Esper deck as the best deck. Um, I think we kind of had a realization after the pod where it was kind of like this discussion about like, oh, what do we think about red and all this stuff? But like the red deck wasn't that good. So realistically, the thing the metagame should do is just kind of pretend the red deck isn't going to exist and then play whatever version of Esper is best against the other decks. Or I guess the deck that I kind of realized like the day after was a really good option was like, oh, well, the red deck is going to prey on other aggressive decks. So you should play the next best aggressive deck that would lose to red, but is going to clean up against other stuff. And that was soldiers, though. I don't I don't think I really would have arrived at the list that Simon played to top eight. 
And soldiers overall also did not have an especially good weekend where uh, Simon uh, was on a tear with it, as Simon usually is, but uh, our defending champion, Nathan Stoyer, had a rough day at the office with it. Uh, Tangram was one of the, the favorites to win the tournament, I think, coming in. They all played soldiers, and only Simon was left flying the flag uh, on day two uh, and then in the top eight. And overall, I, I think there were a few other people who we had pegged as probably being on soldiers, and none of them did especially well. Autumn uh, played soldiers rough day for them uh, as well so yeah really only simon who if if anyone is going to have a good weekend with an otherwise underperforming aqua deck it's going to be simon and um in the survey that was sent out to the competitors of uh where they had you predict you know, who is your pick to win the whole thing and then who is your dark horse pick uh, my dark horse pick did not do so, uh, so great either this weekend but my pick to win the whole thing was simon uh because he has been just on this incredible tear over the past year <laughs> To whatever extent you think momentum is a real thing, he suddenly has it. But also, I think he really has just leveled up into being one of the elite players in the game and was able to continue that this weekend and definitely felt very vindicated uh, in that pick. Even when uh, I, I spoke to Simon when he was 0-2 and his his food had just like exploded in his backpack, so he was frantically <laughs> trying to to figure that out with his uh, you know unflappable good humor before the next round was going to start. Even then, uh, when he was at the 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 nadir, I uh, I had faith. I thought he could turn it around and he, you know, sure enough, he rattled off, I think, like 11 wins in a row or something after that to be not just in the top eight, but comfortably in the top eight. Like, he was one of the highest seeds uh, going into day three. Wow, I did not know that he started this tournament O two. 2 That is bananas. That, that's a very good turnaround. Um, yeah. No, it, it, it literally was bananas. That was one of the things that I think exploded in his, uh, in his backpack there. But yeah, Simon just crushing on all fronts would attribute that to Simon and less so about the strengths of the Soldiers deck. But uh, Soldiers epitomizes one of the uh, reassuring challenges, I suppose, coming into their standard format, which was there were a lot of decks you had to figure out. And then within each one of those decks, there were so many different ways you could build them that it was quite difficult to uh, figure out what that should look like for the sake of either just having a version in your gauntlet or for maybe playing it yourself. And if you got that wrong, you know, if you were testing all of your decks against the wrong version of soldiers, uh, then you could very easily get punished by the right version of soldiers or just a different version that you didn't see coming. So uh, the stock list online that was running around was the list that had main deck wedding announcement and I think seven to eight main deck counter spells. And then you could build the uh, heavier uh, flash version that didn't have the main deck wedding announcements, had even more instant speed threats and uh, interaction. Or you could just do the actual soldiers thing and have the, the full on... Uh, Valiant Veteran, uh, Sky Strike Officer uh, set up as well. And each of those, uh, they, they do have some overlap, but they all are also meaningfully different enough uh, that even grouping them all together as soldiers maybe blurs the lines a bit when you're doing your post-mortem afterwards. And then, yeah, in the moment, you know, your matchup with your, let's say, your Black Midrange deck against a version that has main deck wedding announcements versus no main deck wedding announcements or yeah, if your ramp deck maybe you're really good against the aggressive builder soldiers but against the list that are uh flashing in all their threats on your end step and then they have seven main deck counter spells where your your sunfalls or whatever look pretty mopey uh in that regard yeah and simon's list really only has like three cards that are dedicated soldiers cards which are the harbins i mean zephyr sentinel technically calls out soldiers but i i don't really count that like isn't most of the goal of it in this deck to be looping Knight Errant and getting way ahead on cards when you start running out. Yeah, and this is a Soldier's deck almost in the same way that the the Fairy's deck in Eldraine Limited is a uh, a tribal or a theme deck too. Whereas, yeah, they, th this word just shows up on some of the cards, 
but it doesn't feel like uh, your classic like elves deck or goblins deck or humans deck or something. Like it is quite a, a quite a, a light touch uh, in that regard. Um, and this one of the big innovations in this build of humans, or excuse me, this build of soldiers is not a soldier at all. Is a hu- just a human in Lunar veteran. Uh, so I think the realization there is, if you're trying to be this knight errant deck you're trying to go wide you need your one drops to be quite sticky and not just to be cut down by cut down or by uh cheap burn spells and other stuff like that and so having this just extra thing that comes back via disturb on top of yoshin frontliner that's a really nice place to be um and even though it's not a soldier if you don't actually care about that specific tie-in, then that's fine. And you can cast a wider net and you find these cards, which if you're just doing the, the Scryfall uh, search for uh, T colon soldier, like you, you, those are going to slip through the net. It is kind of funny that we are dodging this, given the fact that Harbin is like a heck of a commitment to soldiers. Um, I guess the card I would like your opinion on specifically in this list is a regal bunny corn, not just here, but like in general in the format. Yeah, Bunnicorn is a really interesting one, and it's one of the, the most appealing cards to try to make work from Worlds of Drain, I think. And uh, in, in our testing, we had a bunch of these Bunnicorn decks, which Bunnicorn is how you get your foot in the door, and then by the end, it's almost, yeah, the deck has Bunnicorn, but that's not the point, or maybe you're uh, sideboarding out some Bunnicorns in some matchups, or leaning away from those. But the, the squeeze that puts both you and your opponent in sometimes is that in your deck, which is trying to go very wide and be good against the one-for-one removal, Bunnicorn is the thing that gives that one-for-one removal a good target. So against these back mid-range decks that are full of these go-for-the-throats, let's say, this is the one good target for go-for-the-throat, which it hurts you if, let's say in game one, you have a draw with that, that is reliant on Bunnicorn, and they have their removal that they have a good target for now. But then also, it puts them in a tough spot, because are they meant to just leap in a, a ton of cards like that, knowing that they line up so badly against your other... 38 to 40 spells when you know if your hand is full of go for the throws and cut downs your opponent plays a, a wedding announcement or a resolute reinforcements like those cards just look outright embarrassing uh so it puts both players in this really weird spot uh but the card is powerful enough to be worth that tension sometimes uh, and there are a lot of ways that people try to uh to navigate that so you saw this uh soldiers ish deck uh that simon and nathan uh, and tangrams played that yeah it's just a go by deck that because of that just has some bunnicorns in it or uh, the deck that really stood out to me that i wish i had tried myself after looking over all the lists was uh haynes deck which was uh, essentially blue white tokens centered around bunnicorns this gigantic uh two drop there which it has that same property there where you have your bunnicorns and your adelines which demand that one-for-one removal and then you have all the other cards in the deck which line up really well against that one-for-one removal so uh for hayne he could go one of the nut draws in the deck, which actually doesn't take that many moving parts, is uh, turn two Bunnicorn, turn three Invasion of Segovia. So it's the battle, uh, it makes two of the 1-1 the one, one Trample uh, Kraken tokens when it comes in. And so now you have a 4-4 four, four Bunnicorn, and conveniently the Invasion has uh, four defense or whatever that, uh, that term is. So you can play that, attack the Invasion, and then if that gets to flip, you now transform that. So you have uh, nine power in play, you untap all your stuff, and now because of Invasion, you can convoke out stuff like uh, Protect the Negotiators, Mate Disappear, Wandering Emperor, and so on. So that's a very appealing nut draw, which takes basically two cards, and then those two cards also line up well with the rest of your deck. Uh, and more broadly, uh, Haynes deck, it, it kind of fit in a lot of these elements which ended up 
being incorporated in the Espadex. So this package of uh, wedding announcement, wandering emperor to to fight the midrange fights, but then also you do want access to cards like may disappear, negate, or protect the negotiators if you can support it against the ramp decks or reanimator or anything else trying to go over the top of you. And his deck has all of that. And then uh, tying the room together and offering the top end, uh, he had virtue of loyalty. So this is one of the breakout cards from the weekend where the adventure half is. Uh, two mana for an instant, you make a 2-2 two, two night with Vigilance, and then the, the front side is 5-drop enchantment, which at the end of your turn, you untap all your creatures, put a plus 1, plus 1 counter on them. So you can imagine how that card, if you're in these stored-out boards where both players have a ton of tokens, that's a very nice way to break through all of that. But just the general interaction with, for example, Convoke in this deck, you get some like Wilderness Reclamation style play patterns there, or just with Wedding Announcement, you can stack it so that you make the token from Announcement first, and then put a counter on everything and untap it, and then eventually the wedding announcement is going to flip, you have this double anthem thing going. Uh, so there's just a lot of fun stuff going on in that space there. And then as a way to go completely over the top, Hain also has uh, Invasion of New Phyrexia. So if you have a flipped Invasion of Segovia and a few tokens, you can convoke out a gigantic Invasion of New Phyrexia, um, and then all your other cards can help to transform that, or pop all the tokens from that as well so all the moving parts there fit together very nicely and then also you have these these uh these nut draws to get the the good brain chemicals flowing and uh draw you into the deck in the first place so uh haynes record in the end uh i think he had a rough day too and he said the deck itself was a bit rough around the edges but if i was going to put some more time into the standard format and i don't really have a reason to which is one of these issues which we'll come back to before long uh that's the first place i would look i think I'm currently learning what the backside of this invasion is because every time I saw it cast in limited, someone just lost the game before that mattered. Um, it probably is about the same in standard. I I do want to say that I, I respect the idea of the Segovia and updraw, and that is a draw to playing for Bunnycorn, but like the way you are describing the card, I am actually really interested in Simon's approach of playing a limited number because it's the kind of card where like all of your other spells are the things that augment it positively, whereas if you have two Bunnycorns, like there's a lot of ways to get stranded with two bad cards in that situation. So it feels like the kind of card you don't necessarily want four of. Um, also just because it's like not universally good. It's just sometimes a, like a pretty high power leverage card. But like when you're talking about like this exact start where you're like, okay, I just do this into this and then the game has like gotten off on the right foot, then yeah. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I think Bunnicorn is a card which you you can't really pencil in as a 2-drop most of the time, because if it's just a 1-1 one, one or a 2-2, two, two, very easy to just swat it out of the way and move on. It's the kind of thing which, once you get to turn 5, maybe you you double spell with it and something else once it, it it's going to be big enough to protect it from stuff, or you, you play Bunnicorn and you're able to hold up a kick to make disappear or something, and, and that's when the card really comes into its own, but you need enough stuff at that spot in your curve earlier to to justify waiting that way and not have to just expose it ahead of time. Yeah, I, I do have one other slight issue with this deck, and you mentioned it a bit with Virtue of Loyalty, which is that, like, you're like, yeah, you can do all this stuff and, like, these high-leverage things. I don't think you need to be dedicated tokens in any way to make Virtue good. I think that just, like, if you cast the back half of Virtue, you're, you're just going to win the game with, like, whatever material you have. And some of that is just naturally going to be wedding announcements, so I... I I don't actually think Virtue itself is a draw to this deck, and it's it's almost the reverse, where, like, you have put a, like, lower impact 2-drop into your deck, so you almost want to make up for that, you know, turn 2 Virtue of Loyalty by having higher power creatures up the curve, and then the threat of the Virtue itself just taking over if you resolve anything and just have, like, assorted garbage after the fact. 
Whereas if you are just like, I'm going to virtue into invasion, it's, it's just like a lot of small nothing. Yeah, Virtue really shined in these more generic Esper decks too, where uh, they had this heavier flash component than they did before. And so for them, it was another two drop that uh, fit into that plan, but then also broke open these board stores later on. And yeah, you, you don't have to be punching, uh, pumping up a bunch of tokens. You can also just make your Denik even bigger, make your Rafine even bigger. And that's, that's just fine as well. So uh, it rose to prominence as just a much stronger card generally than people anticipated and then if you are leaning into this go wide thing then then hey that's just the the cherry on top of that um but w one of the questions from that uh debate last week was what is going to be the most played wild Swordering card overall both of you said the black virtue not the white one and you were both correct uh black virtue was a a big hit but i think what you saw was a lot of the aggro decks either were pushed out if they were weak to the Black Virtue, so builds a mono red that just didn't take that card seriously enough, for example, or the successful uh, creature decks found ways to blunt the impact of a sorcery speed card that could only target one thing. So yeah, if you are doing the flash thing and then uh, they go to Virtue your your threat and you you pick it up with Zephyr Sentinel and now you still have that card and you've you fizzled the life gain and the adventure side of, of the Virtue as well. Like it, it's not a tough card to play around if you're trying to respect it, um, but you need to give yourself the room to respect it. And that was the one of the big dividing lines for which aggro decks or which creature decks did well uh, and which ones did not. You're just so to me. It sounds like you're describing a situation where like. You are playing around their two-drop removal spell being even worse for you than just, like, trading. So it it feels like you, like, I don't know, the Black Virtue player is coming out ahead in that spot. They just, like, it's not the way that they plan, but, like, I, I struggle to find a spot where, like, if I built my deck right, I wouldn't just be fine with what you're describing in most of the spots. Yeah, it's kind of uh, the mirror image of the Bunnicorn thing, where if you're relying on your virtue to stay alive because that is your two-drop removal spell, then if that gets blunted and there are ways to do that, then that becomes a problem. Whereas if it's just another part of the puzzle where it lets you overload on treat removal and then your late game is just taken for granted because eventually you'll cast the the other half of the virtue, the dead is not half, and then they'll die, um, that's when it becomes a lot harder to play around. So it's the same kind of a quality versus quantity thing, I think. But yeah, if your your premise coming in was, oh, I'll just have some black virtues and that's really good against aggro and then maybe as a result of that, I can trim some of these cut downs because those are less versatile, That that's when it's easier to punish that with, you know, for example, you're against the, the winning Esper Legends deck, you're on the draw, they have turn two Thalia, well, now your virtue is a turn three play and there's no guarantee that... Uh, Thalia is even the thing you most care about by the time they finish their turn three. So, uh, yeah, if that is your first meaningful play, very easy to just still fall massively behind anyway. But if it's part of just a bigger package of stuff, well, that that's when it really... And you, and you get to exploit both half of that, that's when it really uh, shines, I think. Yeah, it it does feel like Thalia was relatively good for this tournament. I don't, the, how do you feel about Thalia in these Esper Mirrors? Because it's, at least the last time I played them, it was such a weird spot where, like, Half of the time, having Thalia was actually really good because it was just another thing that stopped your opponent from clawing back when you slammed the next big thing. But then, like, the other half of the time, it's just like, this is a stupid two-one. What am I doing with my life? Yeah, the, the card was very overtly polarizing for me. So I thought Thalia was going to be fantastic uh, for this tournament. And I was drawn to Esper Legends, and I volunteered to be the, the Esper Legends uh, point man in testing uh, because I wanted to get a head start on that. And I could just not buy a win with legends against a lot of decks which i felt 
like I should be pretty good against. And Thalia was actually part of that, where often I had a draw which relied on Thalia to keep up and it just kind of underperformed even when it should be good or uh my Thalia died I didn't have anything going on or I drew multiple Thalias and the first one lived but now I couldn't back it up with anything because my hand was full of these redundant Thalias and stuff so I, I don't know I th- that card and the the Esper Legends formula in general were underwhelming enough for me that I had to consciously put that bias aside and just uh look for something else instead and ended up playing you know generic esper mid-range with a lot of other competitors uh so i i wanted to love thalia but i just couldn't talk myself into it uh by the end yeah i i am in a similar boat with the card i like the problem i have is that i think plaza of heroes is just like absolutely busted and i want as many as possible in my deck and all this other great stuff but like if it means playing thalia like what's the cost yeah i don't know if it does like yeah plaza is messed up but i think you can have a build of esper where plaza is just defending your rafine or shieldred from the first wave of interaction as opposed to i have to play a billion legends that i don't really want to play otherwise just because uh plaza is talking me into it i did find when i tried to work more plazas into my uh my esper mana base that it was kind of tough to have for example enough black sources for my my cut downs and go for the throws and also enough blue sources for my my fairy masterminds and my my mates appears like the the cost of having effectively a colorless land when you're trying to bridge the gap between several colors of non-legendary uh spells well that, that was a steep cost i think you can split the difference to some extent and this is where i wish we had more weeks of uh, relevant tournaments in this format because it would be kind of fun to see to what extent would the the Esper Legends decks and the Esper Midrange decks uh, blur together or borrow elements from each other and end up as a kind of more diverse whole by the end. Yeah, I... Yeah, I. it's really hard to tell where the line is between those two. Again, like... It, you're going to start quibbling about like how many copies of Make Disappear people play versus how many, like random like two drops with names they play it's is i mean i guess you mentioned this with the the world's metagame separation but i don't know i i guess it's probably worth talking about like this was uh something i posted on twitter which is that i guess it kind of it goes back to like a lot of stuff but my exact tweet was um i'm like coming around full circle to the idea that standard is failing because of game design and not like organized play or the economy um and I think a lot of that, like, the the Esper deck is not the problem, but it's emblematic of a lot of the issues where, like, this format, first off, the thing I specifically said was that it has the same vibes as, like, the five-set Shadows or Battle for Zendikar formats where, like, there's a mess of mechanics and they aren't really tied together very well. So, like, everything kind of feels like this soup of medium mana and spells, like, the Esper Legends deck that one has a Legends theme, but like there's no, there's not a Legends theme in Standard. There's just cards they printed for Commander. If you look at these decks, and I guess we haven't talked about the ramp decks at all, I don't really know what I'm supposed to be getting out of playing the Standard format. That is, a lot of these things are like very like distinct in memory because clearly, like if you didn't play that format, then that was not an experience you could have. I don't know what this standard format has to offer, and I don't know why I'm supposed to play it over Pioneer. Yeah, I don't know if in five or ten years from now, people will look back on any of the decks from this era as, oh yeah, that was one of my favorite standard decks of all time, or uh, this was something that you you couldn't get in the standard formats on either side of it. That said, uh, 
being a little bit less ambitious than that, I think it is a good spread of decks across the spectrum, really. So you have uh, aggro, mid-range, combo, control, uh, just all of the the usual uh, deck types pretty well represented. And then within most of those, there are actually several viable options for each, lots of different ways you can build them. Um, so whatever your playstyle is, you can find something that does speak to you. And maybe it doesn't speak to you in quite the same way that your your favorite deck from 2012 standard uh, speaks to you, but uh, it's, it's pretty good. Um, so it, the kind of thing which you can hitch your wagon to for an entire RCQ season, let's say, if that was something you had to do in the near future, to not to harp on the theme too much before we actually get into it. Um, but yeah, I, I think there is a larger question about what do you want standard to be and what purpose do you want it to serve? But for a... Reali for most realistic answers to that question, I think this one actually does it pretty well. Uh, and certainly more so than the the seventy percent Esper format of last year. Um, and in the counterfactual where standard was still two years, and we had lopped off the first year of sets from this standard format to get back to five set standard, I don't know how good that would look necessarily. But you know, I I had I had fun preparing for the tournament and playing these standard matches in the tournament, and there are a few decks coming out of it which I look at them and I want to find an opportunity to play if there was one and to have a chance to refine those outside of just you know the the weekly standard challenge or something yeah i mean like there is a lot of a lot of diamonds in the rough in this format like the i'm skimming down to like chris ferber's deck in 24th place which is just like the only cut anvil deck that everyone wishes they could have played and it, it just did get played and, and did do fine and like it'd be really cool to give these decks a little more room to breathe and play but i, I just don't see where that iteration is happening yeah, I, I think this is the larger issue then, because one of the announcements we had from the weekend was uh, a follow-up on what they said when they broadened Standard to three years back with the announcement at Pro Tour March of the Machine, uh, where they want to push more in-store play for Standard now, so uh, store championships or the equivalent are coming back and there's going to be Standard, uh, and it seems like we're going to have a standard RCQ season again before too long, as long as that syncs up well with, uh, you know, whatever pioneer modern standard rotation is coming down the pipeline. They also have curiously held off on announcing the locations and formats for the next year of Pro Tools, which you would think, like, this would be the perfect time to announce those. Uh, they did confirm that the second PT of next year is going to be standard. Uh, unclear if that means just all the PTs now are going to be standard, or maybe it's going to be that same uh, one of each cycle, which I think I would uh, prefer. And then also at those PTs, or those magic cons that they're a part of, instead of the 100k limited opens that we've had uh, up until now, there are also going to be these 75k standard opens. So there will be chances to play high level standard, but that's going to be heavily dependent on like where you are and what level of the structure you participate in. And so yeah, I, I don't think we're going to have the same level of engagement with standard at a local level still that we had, uh, you know, eight to 10 years ago. And maybe that is a lost cause in a world of uh, arena and all of these other things. And this is basically just rehashing the debate that we had at the time that first announcement was made. Um, but I, I think they acknowledged, like, yeah, getting standard back to something resembling that, like, that is the ultimate stretch goal, which if we can do it, that would be fantastic. I just don't know if this is actually a meaningful step in that direction still. Yeah, I, I think I I think that a step in the direction is good. Like, I don't want to negate what they have done and what they are trying to do. But it's like the way I described it when I read about it was, you know, so they're they're giving it one Grand Prix. 
That's what it's getting. Like, this is the level of support that Legacy had in 2007. Which, admittedly, Legacy did become a huge format because it was given this, like, runway to work with. But I would not take this as a reason to just, like, oh, I'm playing Standard now. It's just like, okay, I will have a chance to play Standard and we'll sort of see what happens from there. Yeah, there there will be some Standard uh, GP equivalents, but you won't have that same kind of season of standard gps which have led to the format uh flourishing and evolving over time like we had in the past so you think back to the like 2016 to 2018 era where you had like brad and Corey kind of re-breaking the format as a response to their own previous breaking of it the previous week and just doing that in cycles over and over again um and the you know in the aftermath of a standard pro tour the format might look very different even just two or three months later because those same people often had an incentive to travel to as many of these standard GPs as they could, chasing the points that they didn't get at the PC or, uh, you know, after that good finish there, that well, now they're making a push for platinum, so they're heading to everything that they can. So even though you have a few more big standard events on the calendar, the people who maybe are the most skilled or most motivated at uh, furthering that just don't really have a reason to be there in quite the same way anymore. And some of the some of them will be playing in the tournaments that these are running alongside, thus locking them out from actually participating in those. So uh, it's it's a weird system where a lot of the the bigger events are explicitly locked out from the people who you kind of want in those to make them feel like high stakes uh, professional magic. Yeah, I also uh, I want to like talk back to that specific era because. Let's talk about the Pro Tour that kicked that off. What was the top eight at that? It was like six mono red decks. Do you know how bad people would think that format was if we did not play the same format for eight weeks? When it turned out to actually be one of the best standards of that era, if not like in general all time. Like our Devastation standard was was great. Uh, and the Pro Tour showed like a really skewed and gross set of results where it was just like red and then people trying to play zombies and mining constructor to keep up. And that just didn't hold more than three days. But if no one played it again, that's what people would see this bad format as. Yeah, and there have been times over the past year or two where if you check in on the standard results online, it looks even worse than that. So I think back to when uh, JMM won the New Capenna Championship with the Hinata deck and basically... Every challenge uh, on Modo for a few months straight was just Hinatomos everywhere and maybe like the odd mono green deck or something would pop up and that was the extent of the innovation when in reality, if there had been any eyes on that format or if, uh, you know, Tangrams didn't get DC'd in the top eight or whatever and had won with the, the Dragonstorm deck instead, you, you change just a few of these things. Like maybe that format was a diamond in the rough, which if people had known about it, they would have enjoyed a lot more. But instead, just the... The public perception for the single-digit number of members of the public who who cared about it was, yeah, this format is is stale, and thank God no one actually has to care about it. And so sometimes you wonder what direction that really goes. But like, yeah, if if people have a reason to care, they can find a way to move it forward. But because they don't, uh, it it acquires this reputation as something which you shouldn't have a reason to care about, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's stagnant. It's not going to move forward without people moving it forward, and therefore every time you look back at it, it's the same garbage yet again. Yeah, and this format, I think, looked pretty good like from the inside and from the outside, but I I would almost put enough faith in it that that would hold up, and you'd see continued evolution if there was any arena to actually do that in, 
which there really isn't despite this announcement so i think this is a good first step but i would like to see several more steps to actually usher that forward even further so i mean e even something as far as you know one of the big constraints on bringing standard back in paper is just the popularity of arena and it may be difficult to incentivize people to buy into standard there and also buy into standard in paper which to some extent is a good problem to have but if you want to play standard on arena what are you meant to do like you just go on the ladder and bash your head against the wall for a few hours in the hope of getting to mythic like there's no there's no tournament you can play in there's no chance for glory of any kind even if you hit number one mythic this is and this is something which has seemed like free money that they've just left on the table for so long okay you hit number one mythic and then you have to go onto twitter and post a screenshot of it and hope that fire shoes is feeling uh sympathetic enough today to to retweet you to a wider audience like there's no in client way to even know or care about what the results of this uh interminable ladder process are it just you just have to hope that the, the internal satisfaction is good enough i suppose yeah i do want to point out one thing you said which is that like the double buy-in thing the standard isn't like especially horrific outside of like one or two specific cards and it's just shouldered right like what else in standard is uh especially horrific to obtain copies of I'm not going to talk about the arena economy, whatever. But, like, um, it feels like we're getting close to a point where it's sort of okay to, like, just own standard cards. Yeah, it, it basically is just Shielded or some of the, the wider Esper stuff. But even then, it, it, it is mostly just Shielded. And this is where I, I will mention the arena economy, So since you won't. This is where that almost cuts at a right angle to the paper economy. Because, for example, if you're building the uh, the mono red deck in paper, which not sure if you should do that, given it's pretty woeful uh, win rate this weekend. But let's say that is your, your natural entry point, as it has been in many standard formats in the past. That one is pretty easy to build in paper, but some of that is because the rares and mythics that are in there just don't actually cost that much. You know, you can buy your your three dollar Godricks or whatever, and and that's fine. Whereas on Arena, like if all of those are cheap in paper rares or mythics, well, they cost you just the same as a shield does, which uh, from one angle is fantastic, but from the other direction can be a massive downside if you're trying to actually balance stuff on both platforms. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is a classic problem with the arena economy. I don't really know what you're supposed to do to solve it, uh, and it causes all sorts of problems that we have discussed in the past, and uh, don't love the platform. That's all I'll say at this point. <laughs> Magic Online, great. Arena, not so much. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's just rubbernecking, right? Where, like, you, you see the, the, the crash in progress on the side, and there's not really much to say. You just kind of gawk at it and then move on before you gawking becomes too awkward yeah and i maybe the paper economy looks different if people are actually playing standard but at the same time i am somewhat of a skeptic just based on like volume of these cards printed versus like all the alternate art set booster nonsense that's thrown in there that subsidizes them yeah and then maybe going back through some of the other answers here in the questionnaire so uh thali and top eight yes uh and in uh, holding the trophy, in fact, for, for John Emanuel Dupra. Uh, most play deck. Uh, the options here were Esper, Red, Golgari, Ramp, or other. Both of you said Esper. The answer was, in fact, Esper, though, in a much more healthy percentage than we had uh, this time last year. Uh, the winner, same options. Same options for you guys. You both said Esper. The reality was the same option again. It was Esper, although... I, I, I guess if you had to guess between Legends or Midrange, I don't know how each of you would have fallen there, but I think either... 
either would have made sense and if you go back to um may or june of this year when that round of bands really kind of uh cut the Rakdos mid-range jacks out of the knees one of the things people predicted at the time was well maybe we should have hit like plaza or rafine or something at the same time because this was the the second best deck if you like and this is entirely intact and so if you told people back then that yeah as legends is going to win worlds that would have seemed very predictable at the time but we did go through this weird uh interstitial period where esper was nowhere online and was doing pretty badly and then it kind of came back in force for this tournament but even then just uh mid-range esper had a better win rate and a lot of the other esper legends uh teams or pilots didn't do so well so maybe this is a similar case to uh, Simon Nielsen with Soldiers is, yeah, uh, Deprat is going to do well with basically whatever's in his hands, but maybe don't try this at home unless you are uh, in that same register. I don't think I'm quite dissuaded from playing the Legends list of Esper just based on the broad form performance. Because, again, I just really think the Plaza of Heroes and, like, playing 8 million value lands aspect of it is just so good. Mm-hmm. And then one of the more revealing questions was, what will the team handshake deck of choice be? Uh, both of you said Esper, and the answer was Esper kind of, but with several asterisks by it, because they had uh, several different decks among the team. So the uh, Simon, Tangrams, uh, Nathan Story contingent played Soldiers. You had Javier Dominguez and Anthony Lee, who broke through to the top eight here, was very excited to see that, very happy for him. They both played just uh, stock-ish Golgari midrange with a bunch of these... Uh, uh, one-offs and two-offs and so on and I think they both said yeah this is maybe not the best choice for the tournament but this is the deck that we feel most comfortable playing so have at it and it's maybe a sign of confidence in the format that you can just do that and feel okay uh, w- w- with that choice and more broadly basically any large team didn't have one thing that clearly stood out to them as the best deck so uh, CFB for example some of them were playing this this mono white human deck but then some of them were just playing other stuff uh reed was in the top eight uh once again with domain um they had some differences of opinion there and then uh the japanese players it seemed didn't reach a consensus and then basically any large group had two or three different decks uh under that uh umbrella so i guess that is generally a sign of health if these players are banging their head against the wall and racking their brains and none of them can really come up with any uh conclusive answer how much of that do you think is the size of the tournament relative to last year's Worlds where just, like, you have a large enough team that there's a breaking consensus? I, I have to see, like, the exact numbers breakdowns and think about it. I guess this is fairly disjointed. Uh, it's not just, like, oh, ten people played one deck and there were, like, two people who played something else and two others. It's, it's like, you know, you know, five over here, eight over here, three over here. So, yeah, okay, that's about right. Yeah, I think Standard was a success for this tournament. I would like to have more chances to play this standard and keep working on it and i just i'm begging what's once again to actually give me those but until then uh we can maybe give some big picture thoughts on just the format as a whole for this weekend and then any decks that really stood out i guess <laughs> one deck that stood out was the shota deck uh, of this weekend played by who else shota which in this case was uh blue black fairies splashing restless cottage which Blue Black Fairies by itself was a bold choice by the time we got to this weekend because it was a deck which you see the fairy stuff on the spoiler and you think, okay, well, we'll we'll try and build this like pre-constructed deck, if you like, as they want us to do. And then once we did that at first, it it seemed like it was going to go nowhere and this was yet another like failed uh, creature type sub-theme. And then there was a, a hot minute where it did well online and we thought, oh wait, this deck might actually be great and if it's great that places a big constraint on what else you can do in the format where yeah this deck is 
really bad against aggro, but it's really, really good against ramp or some of these bigger mid-range or control decks or anyone that gives them the time to go underneath. And so if fairies is good, that is a big factor for your deck choice in a way that, you know, Esper mid uh, being good uh, would, would not be. And it turns out that uh, Fairies itself kind of flopped in the end. Uh, only one person played it, and that was Shota. But I, I don't know if uh, splashing a Manland is what it takes to actually bring that deck to the spotlight. But uh, or, or if if you're going to do that, if this is even the green Manland that you want to splash over the the blue green one. Uh, but I, I guess his results do not uh, inspire confidence there. No, I'm I'm not even. I wanted to say I'm like almost reminded of what Fairies look like pre Bitter Blossom, but I'm I'm not just because like. The fairies aren't good in the way that, like, even a Spellsetter sprite was. Like, even then, you had, like, Spellsetter Mistbind Click, and that was scary. These fairies are just, like, I don't know. Uh, Sleep Curse Fae is fine. Mastermind's a good card, um, but, like, I don't think it really pays you for being a fairies deck. You're kind of playing these, like, additional spells that are conditional on your creatures I, I don't know it almost reminds me of like what the merfolk decks are when they played like sages dowsing back in the day which is like you are playing a bunch of mediocre creatures to enable a decent spell but not even like a backbreakingly good one yeah it's like you're jumping through hoops to get a thought seize or a mana leak and those are great cards but the the, the cheap fairies the the supporting cast just isn't really there to do that i think and uh even the the creature payoffs it's like well you you have uh Tadion's messenger for example but then you, you try and build the deck in a way where that card would be good and you realize that you've you've basically just built a an esper deck except your rafine is even worse somehow after, after all is said and done yeah and I, I guess you just said there's like a thought seize. it's an off-curve thought seize. it's that's not really how that card is at its yes. best uh, any other decks that uh caught your eye i guess not really on coverage because most of the the cool one-offs uh, fell by the wayside and didn't do well. You had the Soul Cauldron decks, which that was the thing. Oh, which, yeah. if it had done a little bit better, if that had broken through, and if that was the story of the tournament, I would be kicking myself for not finding that and putting more work into it. As it stands, like I, I wish I could be angry with myself about just registering Stock Esper because it was the most popular deck, and despite that, also still had the best win rate, which is pretty rare for those two things to to coincide. Um, so, even though my process getting there was more uh, last minute and uh, meandering than it should have been, we can we can get into that. Um, I can't regret the final choice, and I really wish I could. Like, I, I want to be kicking myself more. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you 100%. Uh, like, it's there's some one-offs that did better. I mean, even looking through, like, it's like, name an inspiring deck. It's like, okay, I talked about the Racto Sacrifice deck. I'm interested to see if that deck can evolve. But it's like, I don't know. I've got to the point where, like, yeah, the Cauldron deck is also pretty cool. Um, I appreciate that deck existing. But, like, I don't know. Like, other things I appreciate are, like, Yuta playing with his own card. Like, I don't know. That's the level of detail in these deck lists like it's uh i don't know people played a lot of the good decks and there were some good like minor innovations and uh it's a good format but it's not a flashy one and i think that is the nature of the argument we had earlier about like i don't know what deck is enticing me to play this format that i am going to play now and feel like i uniquely got to play something but the answer is just like there's just a bunch of fun decks to play that all play good magic against each other I will say, uh, Yuta only paid three copies of his own card, which is a very uh, confusing number to me, because if I had a card with my literal face printed on it, you best believe if I can play that, I'm playing four copies, and if I can't, I'm going to be grumbling about it. So, But playing exactly three is a much more uh, 
disciplined choice, and I can never see myself making. Well, you see, the thing is, is that you want the second card with your face on it to go with the first one, so you have to make disciplined choices the first time around. Once you have both of the cards with your face mm. on them, then you can just go buck wild. Yes, I, I did enjoy the the passing of the torch moment of you know Dupra after losing in the finals to Yuta two years ago, back when uh, Worlds was being played online, getting to kind of come back here and, and finish the job finally. And uh, I, I think anyone who was paying attention knew he was one of the best players in the game. Not someone who is a flashy personality or that high profile given that uh, but certainly is now whether he uh, he likes it or not we'll, we'll be getting a lot of attention and i think we'll be a a good ambassador for the game if maybe a fairly low-key one yeah i mean he is someone who every so often you just see something that is extremely insightful posted by him and that's really all you see and if you're just going to be quietly smart every you know three months there's there's a you know that's pretty high up on the scale of positive contributions to the game just like wit a lot say smart stuff be chill about it. I don't know. Yeah, uh, not posting uh, may just be the smartest move that anyone can make these days, even if it's one that I, again, do not have the discipline to embrace myself. Uh, any general thoughts or questions on uh, th this half of the tournament, I suppose? Uh, if you have any stories about your prep you would like to share besides just, like, the Esper struggle, go ahead. That's really it. Yeah, so uh, the, the squad I worked with, which was basically the same, uh, you know, cosmopolitan group that we had for Proto Martin Machine and Barcelona uh, as well, basically uh, the the diagnosis, and we, we still have our internal postmortem to do, but I think just the, the one-sentence storyline is a lot of people just didn't really want to play that much Constructed, and so it was very tempting to... Once it seemed like our, our exact deck from last time, this Blackbird Reanimator deck, once it seemed like that was actually going to be a good choice this time around, it was quite tempting to to lock to lock that in. And I was close to doing that myself because I, even though I felt very burned by it from last time, I was very hesitant to uh, to embrace it. And even when we realized that our standard testing was slipping a bit and we needed some more uh, order imposed on that, and I was a uh, I kind of volunteered and was volunteered as the person to try and uh, uh, leave standard from that point. It, I, I felt self-conscious about the fact that as the person who is normally in charge of this format, I had the least confidence in the team deck of anyone here. Um, I just didn't, like, even though it was putting up good numbers and it seemed like a lot of the context from last time had changed and we had some of the external people consulting like Mogged, who, you know, if you've ever seen uh, the standard challenges or really any other format challenges too, someone who is always in the trenches, always doing well, one of the few people who actually does care about standard, even when not given an explicit reason to do so. He thought the deck uh, could be good this time around. I just I just didn't buy it. There, there was something speaking to me that, yeah, this, this is not going to work out. And so once... I well, once this crop of Esper decks finally became public fairly late in the process, and we added that to our gauntlet and tested our reanime list against those, Esper was just kind of clowning on it in a way that it made sense, just looking at the cards and, and how they all lined up. But the Esper deck itself also just felt quite strong and much more cohesive than it did last time around, where if you you, you go back and watch the, the world's coverage from last year, the Esper decks, you, you see them draw their opening hand and it's, all right, well, I have this this A or something, or some like random four drop or five drop. I have a tenacious underdog that's going to get one attack in and then never again. And I have some 
removal spell over here and like a counter spell which well i'm going to be tapping out for four of these five turns so i really hope it's good on turn three or something it's just a mishmash of cards which you have to find a way to stitch together and get value from whereas these lists they felt just more coherent you know with uh fairy mastermind is your two drop uh you have other ways to just use your mana at instant speed and put your opponent in this tough squeeze um all your cards kind of do other things or lead to more cards so you don't really run out of resources ever and then you have the new mana as well letting you turn the corner more quickly so the deck just felt a lot smoother to play and it was more clear how you could pivot at any given time to do the thing that you want to be doing um so i was just impressed by esper and it became this this safe default again and i really wanted to be finding something better and like you know if this had been like the new Capenna situation where I just played boring Sock Esper when we also had the Dragonstorm deck and I spent the whole time wishing I was playing Dragonstorm instead. Like, if that was happening here with the Soul Cauldron deck or we had some lit, uh, domain list that we were excited about for a bit, if that happened again, then I would have felt sad. But then, equally, if we had seen the light about Esper, but I had just stuck with the team deck and uh, we had all gone down in flames again with it, uh, that would have felt pretty bad too. So I'm glad that I at least avoided that side of things even though my personal results weren't great but then yeah the fact that i couldn't talk other people out of going down that same route again like that is still something i have to to reckon with yeah i i don't know it is always hard to like take charge of other people's deck decisions in a tournament i don't at some point i just decided i should absolve myself of that responsibility but i understand the desire to like be a good teammate because you would want someone on your team to do that for you yeah and as someone who, in the past, I, I've brewed up some pretty uh, deranged decks and tried to, to mine the, the fringes of a format, I felt like I didn't really do that in quite the same way this time around, even though there was a lot of stuff on that uh, on that terrain to try and figure out. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, there's a lot to think about here, and I think one issue I had, honestly, was because I was one of the literal last people to qualify for the tournament, you know, less than two months ago, it felt like kind of this whirlwind of a process to where after Barcelona, I didn't really have a chance to stop and breathe before having to dive in once again. So I am looking forward to this this off-season now to actually decompress and like think about my options and just think about what I need to be doing myself to uh, to make my process better. But I, I have time to do that now in a way that I felt like I didn't have before and which you know I, I didn't think I would have another chance to need to figure out until you know suddenly I spiked Barcelona and now you know everything is happening all at once. Yeah, I I think that that rush of, like, you almost have as much effort in, like, figuring out how you are even testing for the event before you even get to testing. Like, that that seems like a real struggle. And just, like, already the kind of burnout that leads to, like, cascading bad results if you don't pull yourself out of it. So having a moment uh, of, like, what is it? three? Well, I guess they haven't announced technically when Chicago is, but it's approximately three months from... or. Five months from now, right? Holy crap. Yeah, it is the last weekend of February. We're just waiting for that to become official. Everything else is really up in the air, uh, which there's been some stuff through the grapevine and so on, but uh, nothing concrete until hopefully an overdue announcement gets made. I'm now more ambivalent about having that long off-season because I spent all of Saturday, you know, once I didn't have day two to play in, and then Sunday as well, just basically wandering around the venue, like both floors of the venue, watching my friends win or lose, like very high-stakes matches of Magic, um, and doing that where you had... So, for example, uh, the the play area on Sunday where you had uh, 
the world's top eight here and then the top eight of the uh the limited 100k going on over here and then also the the playoffs of the 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 ragavan secret layer event with the uh i, I think it got to a six-figure brainstorm by the end although that that information i don't think is public either um like all of those going on just next to each other and you could just kind of flip between them and and watch what was happening that that brought some of the fire back you know and then i would go downstairs and oh wait here's a you know friend of the show eduardo against uh my just other friend theo who i beat in a ptu finals a few years ago and now they're playing a ptu finals to see who, who gets to play in chicago and there's just stuff like that happening all over the room um and i wanted to be involved in some part of it somehow you know like i i was so mad that i i didn't bring a deck to play in the secret low events in because honestly hearing the the war stories from from those events and then also seeing like basically every single person i've ever met talk about how they just want a ragavan and they're going to get a chance to play for even more money uh, on the sunday like that was my costiest mistake of the weekend uh, and we'll, we'll get to some of the other ones but that's that that maybe is what i should be kicking myself for is just not uh playing as many of those as humanly possible because uh those look like great events uh with great value and just yeah in general there was enough enough magic going on that i really wanted something to play in but then one of the recurring frustrations of these weekends has been there's just like literally nothing on the sunday which you'd think like this is when basically most of the world's competitors are free and also all the people who were done playing in the limited 100k or some of the ptqs or the other events like those people are raring to game they want something to play in and there just is basically nothing so that also seemed like a, a curious choice which hopefully will be remedied uh for uh these these future magicons yeah, I mean, that's how it was at Pro Tours too, right, though? Like, everyone was just sitting around, like, drafting, watching the top eight on Sunday. But I guess those weren't trying to be more most of the time. No, and if it is tied to back then a GP or now a Magicon, you would think there would be some kind of event for those people to, to sink their teeth into. And in general, I know one thing that we've mentioned as uh, this, like, tough circle to square with these gp size events is you want people who are in that middle band, like the 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 recognizable uh faces to have a reason to come to these events but then also i don't think it's healthy to go back to some kind of a pro point style system where you have people jet setting all over the globe to tournaments that they really don't want to play in just in the hope of uh crawling over the finish line to whatever the next uh status uh is you know, having some kind of a a big event on the sunday like that does actually satisfy both halves of that where these people are just going to be there anyway for for the pt for worlds for whatever shenanigans are going on in vegas but then also the people who are just there for the other stuff well now if you're a competitive magic player like this is your chance to actually play against the you know the lsvs who have nothing better to do today or all the other people who just want a chance of redemption um and it just not having anything for that seems odd to me yeah, the solution to being like, we are concerned that our players would come play too many events if we gave them this structure that incentivizes it is not to like, not make an event they want to play like that. That's, that's like literally the reverse of what you want to do. It's just like, we can't give you anything good because you can't be trusted with it is not. That's a bad outcome. That's a very bad outcome. Yeah, so I, I will find uh, ways to whet that appetite. I mean, there's lots of just good paper stuff, online stuff going on uh, the next few weeks and months, uh, and looking forward to all of that. And I know that by the time Chicago rolls around, I will be raring to go again. But for now, I think it is healthy to have some time to breathe and reflect and then uh, you know, get other things in order as well. Yeah, I mean, Chicago in February, though, like it's going to be fine compared to Vegas. Chicago in February is significantly preferable. 
Well, so I, I do like this uh, this subplot now of every big magic event has some endurance portion associated with it too. So Barcelona in the, the summer heat where they are legally prohibited from having the air conditioning on until people have been carted out in ambulances or uh, Chicago in February, which is like the other extreme. Or I, I don't know, I, I like the idea of you have to... It's, it's a physical endurance test as well as a mental endurance test. And we had some of that this time too because uh, the... The location that Worlds was being held in, it was the same location that everything else was being held in, including all the stuff happening on the main stage with like the game night uh, events and the uh, the panels and so on. And so, even though we were tucked away at the the far end of uh, the hall, there was no kind of a sound barrier. You could hear all of the general ambient noise and also just very explicit uh, verbal noise coming uh, at you from all directions. And so, as the day wore on. You know, I as you know, I could be locked in some really intricate game of standard, and you hear these ear-splitting uh, whoops of joy coming from literally everything that was being displayed on uh, the the game night show, or the the or the new Xland preview cards that were being uh, put up. And so, uh, having to thrive under those conditions, I guess that is the ultimate test that you want from a World Championships competitor. But uh, still, was maybe not uh, an intentional one from the uh, from the organizers. Yeah, I do recall uh, watching. It was that was it the Mangu versus Quarter Calls match for top eight of the uh, limited event, and just the mm. absurd amount of like the side event background noise really does bring me back. Uh, I guess that is preferable to some of the stories where you do not have the side event noise. Um, I, I think there was a specific Cedric one where they moved a side event under him, where he was sitting at the numbered tables waiting for the round to go up, and then it just appeared on the other side of the hole, and he got match lost out of the tournament. But uh, it, I don't know. Maybe that's part of the, the charm and the ambiance of these big tournaments is just like it is all happening and you are just there and you just get it filtered right into. Maybe that's just Vegas. Maybe that's just part of the Vegas experience is just like you are there and the ambience is just like funnel poured through some orifice in your head and you just have to be with it in it at all times. Yes, uh, you take the good with the bad, and maybe that has to be part of the training regimen for next year is, uh, okay, this morning, uh, all of our drafts are going to take place in this ice bath over here, and then uh, in the afternoon, we're going to go in the sauna, and that's that's where the uh, uh, constructor testing is going to happen, and then tomorrow, uh, we're going to have, you know, the, the Game Nights live show being broadcast at just an ear-splitting... Uh, uh, noise and frequency directly in our ears as we're trying to you know, puzzle out this combat math or whatever. You, you've got to train for the tournaments you're participating in and not train for these idealized conditions that don't exist in the real world, apparently. Very clearly not. Uh, we, this was better than Barcelona, though, right? It has to be. Like, no one was... Well, Oh, no much, one, much better. Yes. Yeah, I was going to say, no one was physically harmed uh, aside from those who made their own poor decisions. Uh, but that is just the... The pitfalls of Vegas on any day of any week of any year. Uh, let's uh, touch on the limited portion quickly too, because I, for the the last two PTs, I felt weirdly more confident in limited the constructed coming in, which is not a good sign for me because traditionally I have felt very uh, unsure about limited, and so usually if I'm having any confidence in it, that's a sign that my constructed preparation has gone down the toilet uh, instead. This time around. There were phases where I felt equally unconfident in in both formats, but I never really felt more confident in Worlds of Eldraine draft, even through you know sitting down for the first draft uh, of Worlds. And I guess I learned enough through losing that 
I was able to go into that with something uh, of a plan. But compared to the last few where, you know, I felt like I had Lord of the Rings draft pegged from, from day one. And then March of the Machine, I was losing a lot early on. Book could tell that once that turned around, I would be enjoying it and, and have a good understanding of it. This time, it just felt very puzzling and frustrating at the same time. And when I was losing, and also the, the rare uh, points where I was winning and there might be a glimmer of hope, even then, I felt like, yeah, I, I, I don't, I can't synthesize this into any big picture idea of the format. It's just, uh, I just taking my licks until something hopefully crops up in the end. A lot of people describe formats as like cube drafts, but I, this format really does feel cube drafty in the sense that like you are overly trying to leverage your pieces into something bigger than their parts, but it's not very clear whether you're like, a whole deck engine or just like a couple pieces here and there or like what scale and like the real skill of the format is in like understanding the different scales and like where you're supposed to be aiming your deck at and it's just utterly incomprehensible until you've like i don't know can see everything and be the master of it it's it is a good format it's just very weird yeah running through the the good and the bad quickly so i do think this set executed on certainly food and also adventures better than the original Eldraine did. So I'd heard these horror stories of how games in Throne of Eldraine would just get bogged down because uh, one player could turtle up behind all of these defensive cards and they would crack three or four food in a game. And so you would have to deal 30 instead of 20 and even dealing 20 would be a challenge uh, sometimes. This time around, I think that was fixed in part because it was just a lot easier to be aggressive if you wanted to be. But also you had to work harder to find spots to use food or to generate food and so it felt like it wasn't just there for free and you could just crack it for free and uh start every game with this big life buffer you had to either use it in a more proactive way or take time off to make it or to crack it which in turn would uh be punished another way so if you're spending two mana and that's maybe half your turn or all of your turn cracking your food to gain three that might just be treading water instead of actually moving you ahead in a, in a meaningful way. Um, likewise, the adventures in the set, I think, felt a little bit more cohesive in the sense of part A plus part B added up to either more of the sum of their parts or it felt more obvious how they were meant to fit together. And just playing with those cards in a limited context generally was uh, a lot of fun. I think the the big miss were the the roles, which felt like a solution to a problem you didn't really need to have but once you once you have committed to uh having an enchantment sub theme or some kind of aura sub theme it's basically impossible to get enough cards of that subtype in the set without doing something like this so i don't begrudge that choice i think it to some extent it, they were boxed in there um but the the roles themselves i know uh, ian duke uh said when uh, discussing the set that they went through a lot of different uh, permutations and options for what the role should be and then how they would all fit together and which ones you could have uh, at any given time. And I, I don't hate the the batch that they ultimately arrived at, but I think there's just too little between them to make them feel very distinct. And so once it comes down to just the gameplay involving them, a lot of it just kind of rounds off too. Yeah, well, it gets plus 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 one and some minor benefit, unless you're getting ambushed by, oh, I forgot that this is a royal roll, which gives the creature ward, and oh, I just wasted my removal spell for no reason, and now I instantly lose the game on the spot. So the 
the, the ways in which they feel distinct were not actually that fun or engaging and otherwise they just kind of blended together into this like big soup of roles which you you have to go through and find the specific ones and it was it was very annoying in our early drafts in the testing house where like we just didn't have the enough physical roles of some of the types there and so we were like pretending that this sorcerer role was a wicked role and and if you forgot about that it could be really annoying to track and it was was just kind of a mess to follow in a way that it felt like there was no actual reward that you cared about for that is a very fair argument when playing in paper which i have not done with this set um the one thing i do want to say that i feel sets this set very far apart from the original eldraine is just the uh, like the quality of the rares versus the uncommons. I think one of the things that's pretty critical about this set is that like you mentioned the adventures, but the fact that there are so many uncommon adventures that are high power is really important in bridging one of the gaps that I think original Eldraine had, which is like a lot of the power in that set was concentrated into uh, like either fairly all in uh like low ability to shift things like drafting monocolor uh and a lot of the like quad color costed hybrid creatures that were really just like mono red or mono green uh and then like really stupid game dominating rares and this set has a lot of good rares but they aren't like they're quite as spirally as a lot of the Eldraine ones in a lot of cases like the, like, nth best rare in this set is just, like, I don't know, an Adventure 2 for one. And, like, I don't know, like, what's the gap between, like, Heartflame Duelist and uh, Gingerbread Hunter? Like, that's basically the same card, but one of them's a rare. Like, I I think this set does a better balance of, like, power at rarities, which makes you feel like you can do more things with your average magic card in it. Yeah, I, I think that that's definitely fair. One criticism I had, which didn't actually make sense to me at first and i i brush it off as oh that's just the natural variance that comes up in magic or specifically in limited sometimes but i i felt it enough and then other people both in our team and outside our team were feeling it enough that i had to reverse engineer an explanation of it so maybe you have a theory here too is that it felt like so many games are coming down to flooding in a set which you have ways to spend your mana you have adventures which if you can use one half and then the other half like that's two turns kind of earmarked for for using mana um you have ways to smooth your draws early between stuff like prophetic prism or crystal grotto or candy trail like there's a lot of ways to mitigate the just natural inconsistency of a limited deck um and there's just other ways to keep cards flowing or uh big stuff at the top of your curb once you get there so in theory there shouldn't be an issue either generally or in comparison to most other limited sets and yet uh both i and a lot of other people i spoke to really felt like this was a hallmark feature of this limited format in a way that it hasn't been in in quite a long time and i I still am not quite sure what the reason for that is oh no i can tell you exactly what it is because i forget what the format was that last had this issue the problem is that the two for ones in this format are not like this is the big game little game thing this is the the same black uh Shadow Fang, Disciple versus Elvish Visionary thing, where most of the two for ones in this set are like two pieces of cardboard on the battlefield or like, uh, like again, back to Gingerbread Hunter, where it's like kill your thing and create this. Um, they are not like continuance two for ones. Like they're not mole drifters where like your play begets more plays. It's just two plays. So the problem is that every time you draw two lands and your opponent draws two spells, you are like, stuck with what you have and you're just behind four plays and not actually getting anywhere and like then you like 
if you draw another play that is just two plays to get back in the game, it's not like a cascading chain of additional plays. That's the exact issue that's happening here. Uh, Neon Dynasty actually had this exact issue, and it was one of the biggest sticking points of like the format for me, but the issue wasn't Flood. It was that every card that you drew that was not a two-for-one was considered part of that Flood, just because if your opponent played a two-for-one every single turn and there was the ability to do that in that set... Um, Every card that was a one-for-one one was just, like, effectively about the same. Like, it's the same as drawing a land and your opponent drawing a one-for-one. One. Like, it's just as bad. This format doesn't have that because I think that one of the things this format has that Neon Dynasty didn't is that, like, a lot of the true two-for-ones are costly on the mana front. Um, they're not like the Blossoming Prancers of the world where it's just, like, here's five mana and here's all of the body and all of the card advantage and you're just, like, good luck, have fun, you're dead. Um, like, there's ways to, like punish mana disparities some of the things that are like one for ones are just like good stats and that's their own like quality but like yeah it when you get to the long games this does eventually expose itself yeah so, so one example of that in action was i found myself taking collector's vault higher and higher to the point where by the end it was almost a first bit quality card for me uh even though in practice you could actually get it a lot later most of the time because it had all of the usual stuff of oh this is a set with a lot of cards you want to splash and these off-color adventures and the treasure helps you do that and it's a continual source of fodder for stuff like bargain and so on but also just i know that unless i'm a deck which is really on the extremes of applying pressure or uh, has such a good late game that it almost doesn't matter how much i flood out like i'm going to get to the point where this is going to decide a lot of these games in that band in between and i just want a way to actually continually sift through cards and select for cards over time and this is one of the few things that actually let me do that um likewise even though blue was considered the worst color uh maybe not on the same level as like green in in the last set or in previous sets or some of the other worst colors like it was i think generally regarded as uh the worst color by a decent margin i found that because blue just actually had enough ways to go ahead on cards between a uh, quick study into the fake or and some of the stuff at higher rarities um just pairing that with good defensive stuff in basically any other color and any of uh black red white or green worked for this in their own ways so once you figure that out that was actually a decent formula that had these unique selling points that the average like kill your thing play a blocker and then play a slightly bigger creature like you, you could execute on the classic control or mid-range formula in a way that most other limited decks in this format just didn't really uh have the option to so for example the the white black decks which you could I, I found myself often just having the perfect synergistic base for a good white black deck all of these like enchantments and ways to bounce enchantments or sacrifice them and then rewards for doing that and then even the the uncommon uh gravedigger that could get back enchantments or creatures and it's like these decks just felt so much less than the sum of their parts because you would do all these things and then you would draw one too many lands here or uh, one too f a few spells that did anything over here and if the opponent just actually had a decent draw then it would just amount to nothing in the end. Um, whereas the blue decks, unlike basically anything else, if given enough time, could work through these issues in their own way. Yeah, I, I do want to say two things here. First is uh, I want to bring up a concept that uh, Gavin Alpha Frog uh, brought up about Collector's Vault, which is basically that every time you activate it, you actually draw two cards, but one of them is always a Lotus Petal. Like, it's just kind of fundamentally a broken card. Um, but the other is, I think, again, I obviously have a much more limited set of experience with this format than a lot of people, but 
I heard people complaining about um, Witch's Mark. This is the one red sorcery where you can discard a card and then it like makes a, a mark uh, or what's um, it makes a roll token and you like tormenting voice and people were really down on it because of it targeting. But like my experiences with that card because of this exact land flood thing and like needing this exact balance of like I need to like hit my lands in this order and all this stuff like that cards. I think that cards are just good. Like I don't you're, you're not required to put a roll on something if you're afraid. Oh, yeah. Like, it just does the thing. Yeah, I mean, Witch's Mark was, I think by the end, one of the consensus most important cards for the red aggro decks, and then also great in the the blue-red spell deck because it's just, you know, tormenting voice with outside there. You don't need too much more than that. And then given those structural issues that emerged with the format, it just was one of the better ways of dealing with those as well. So yeah, I mean, Witch's Mark, uh, not going to say you should just, like, slam Witch's Mark first pick and get to work, but that's not the worst idea in the world either honestly yeah it, it's not like um this is not the best that tormenting voice has ever been but it is certainly like a very above average tormenting voice our limited testing uh there was spearheaded once again by eduardo who lost that heartbreaking uh ptq finals to uh i think the second or third of the season to not qualify for chicago so very much hoping he can seal the deal in uh calgary this weekend or find some way to uh, to join the squad uh, for there. Uh, his approach was very heavily data-driven, so informed by 17 lands, uh, data, and uh, and other sources like that. But I found that even though that was useful to a degree, the the biggest kind of level-up moments or epiphanies I had about the format uh, and that we had collectively came out of just these... just looking at some of how the, the cards lined up against each other and these more kind of uh, descriptive takeaways. So, for example... Early on, uh, Hamnick Glutton, the uh, 5GG, uh, like, Honey Mammoth variant, which costs two less if you bargain it, um, that was the best green common and one of the consensus best commons in the entire set, you know, better than a lot of the, the uncommons as well. And it is a big draw into green. But one thing that we found over time was this metagame of sorts developed where uh the blue decks were good against the green decks because you had a lot of ways to shrink creatures or bounce creatures interact with them on the stack and so the idea of just playing expensive threats uh didn't line up well into that um but the blue decks were bad against the red decks because they could go wide in a way that a lot of those effects really lined up poorly against and then the other side of that triangle was well the green decks were meant to beat the red decks because they could present those big early blockers and then um stuff like hamnick Larton was very good at stabilizing but then taking and obviously like black and white are on the outside looking in of that dynamic but just taking that as fixed for the time being it seemed like it was easier for uh the green decks to, to get kind of squeezed out because if the red decks knew to value the threaten effects a lot more highly. So stuff like uh, Twisted Fealty was a massive overperformer, but also the uh, Arete's Tempting Apple, so the, the four-mana colorless threaten effect, which can also sack to uh, you gain three or they 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 lose uh, three. That card was excellent against not just Glutton, but all of the cards like Glutton that the Green decks were relying on to take over the games. And so if the Red decks can buy back a lot of that equity against the Green decks... And then also the the blue decks can really double down on that advantage against green with cards like Diminisher Witch and so on if they, if they know what they're looking for. Um, then the green decks will often underperform even if their overall card quality is pretty good. But it was a lot harder for the blue decks to reverse that dynamic against the the aggressive decks or the decks going wide because the cards just didn't really exist in the format to enable that. 
that realization informed a lot of our results and a lot of our drafting philosophy much more so than any kind of granular thing about well this card has a game in hand win rate of such and such versus this other card like that was maybe part of the reasoning once you delved into it further but just those kind of takeaways i think are what you want to be driving towards and like those are the goals of limited preparation much more so than uh just you know being better analyzing a 17 land spreadsheet than than someone else yeah the spreadsheet is just a starting point i noticed you didn't really mention white or black in that equation were they just kind of doing their own thing so why black specifically really underperformed even when it seemed like you had all the pieces in place and why just as a color like when I look at what I want to pair it with, so green-white as a color pair didn't really come together. The whole aura something there just didn't work. Uh, Blue-white famously, like this is maybe an all-time example of how a uh, a two-color theme in a set just, like the card of traps, you should never be doing this unless you are explicitly forced to. White-red was the maybe the consensus best archetype for a while, but even there, th- this is where that big difference between just like stuff going on 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 arena versus a competitive pod play that that difference became really stark in the case of the the aggro decks because this whole consensus of this is a super fast format and uh the aggro decks are going to go just one two three four against you all the time and you're you're completely dead if you miss your two drop and can't keep up like that like that may be true when people have these easily accessed like optimal versions of these decks on the arena ladder the cards just don't exist for that to be possible in most pod drafts like and especially when people know what to look for or if those cards are being contested like you you will not have a deck that is capable of doing that with any kind of real consistency unless that lane is just wide open for you um and so i i explicitly didn't want to be in black white or blue white or green white and even though i knew red white was good on some level there are a lot of cases we had in our practice drafts of a mediocre white red deck just going one two or oh three because you need to be firing all cylinders before those other decks can turtle up and and start stabilizing and so when you literally don't know what kind of white deck you ever want to be in that's a pretty bad sign for a color if if you ask me so i i had white as pretty firmly uh the worst color in my books and then black was very good but black was good for the exact opposite reason that you could pair it convincingly with all of the other colors and it would just it was good and it was deep enough that it would uh be a good base by itself and then also support whatever those uh specific things those colors were trying to do at the same time okay so you basically had those as like the reverse of like you don't know why you would want to be white and you don't really need a reason to be black okay um how do you feel about the fact that azorius was one of the decks to pull two trophies on day one like i i think that the hate for that deck is overrated it just isn't functional in it's one of those you got to kind of cut your own lane kind of decks. It, it was reassuring that so many different decks uh, claim trophies uh, in the limited pods. And, uh, you know, I, you line that up versus the uh, predictions in that you and Jarvis gave, for example. Like, not expecting that you guys should have had that exact prediction in mind. But, like, it, it is. I, I'm glad this is the world that we live in uh, instead. I think Blue White can work, but it's the same kind of case as some of the, the green decks in Lord of the Rings, where you have to explicitly ignore what the colors pair is telling you to do and just figure out what to be doing instead so i know sam black has been on this big kick with these uh bargain blue decks as he calls them where uh blue as i mentioned is the one color that can easily just go up on cards no questions asked um but it needs the defensive tools to pair with that and so 
if you try and play blue as a tempo color, like with some cheap flyers and your mocking sprites and so on, it's kind of a recipe for disaster. Whereas if you can use the good defensive stuff in the other colors, that is what blue wants to be doing. So in blue-white, you're not trying to do the tapping thing, which is much more proactive. You're trying to just be a control deck where the good defensive cards in white all come to you late. So you can get those Kellen's Light Blades and so on uh, very late. You can find a Princess Takes Flight, and then you have so many good ways in blue to bargain that or bounce that. Um, you know, Johan Stopgap pairing well with either end of, of the saga. Like, th- that is the, the formula that you're working towards, um, as opposed to trying to get ahead and then, you know, stunning their thing three times in a row. Like, that, that just doesn't actually come up in practice. So basically, I, I think the, the roundabout way to get to what you're saying, which is like, the blue-white decks that I'm describing are basically decks where you are accidentally in blue-white based on, like, like you're not looking to be there. It's just kind of like, oh, I'm getting the cards for blue, and oh, look, here's the white cards that go with that. It's not like... so You don't want to proactively go into this route because it is, like, almost utilizing undervalued... Not necessarily underpowered cards, but uh, the fact that you are supposed to be getting these cards late if it's what you're doing. Like, you aren't supposed to start here from pick one pack one unless like your start is like i opened a very powerful blue card and that's what leads me down the roll of blue and then the light blades ninth pick or whatever gets me back into white yeah th- that's how i i describe it too is i i know sam says this is a deck that he goes into drafts looking to be uh, i would not go that far but it's a place i'm comfortable ending up in and i think it's fairly likely that you can end up there if that's a, a safety valve that you're happy with yeah i mean that's just like one of the good things about this format is there are a lot of these like uh you should draft this every 27 draft strategies that are actually pretty functional when they do show up and you know in this case it literally is an entire two color archetype that we're describing but i you know there's a lot of these and it's fine you get enough variety between you know everything else that uh even though you have one miss uh the rest of the format's fine i don't this is one of the first limited formats in a while that I have felt actively inspired to play uh, when I played it. So uh, kudos all around. Interesting. I so the the last two at least, which I've had to seriously prepare for, uh, Martin Machine and Lord of the Rings. I was very happy to keep drafting those even after I got back from the PT, just working through my excess packs on moto or if there were uh, drafts uh, at friends places uh in person i i would jump on those opportunities this one i i'm pretty glad to be putting down uh finally but i think there is a lot to commend it as well as a lot that is frustrating about it too so uh i, I don't know where all of that comes out in the wash but I, i'm glad that the people who like it I, like i i see where they're coming from and there is a lot to like about it if you can see through some of the other stuff which i i i can't see myself doing at this point that's totally fair. I I struggle to find those things with a few of the formats lately, but I know people have said they like them, so maybe I am just overly pessimistic in the cases like, I don't know, Kamigawa, where I am just utterly disgusted by what's going on, and maybe uh, I should be looking more in the form of, like, uh, I don't know, it's a classic Morrow thing of, like, you want someone to really love it, and it doesn't matter quite how much everyone dislikes it, whether they think it's, like, meh or bad, it's about the same. So with that, I, I think that covers my thoughts on Standard and most of my thoughts on Limited too. Uh, unless there are any topics that you want to get into, I guess I can give a sadly brief tournament report just with some of the highlights there. I mean, that sounds good to me. Like, we're already, like, in spoiler season for the next set. So everything involved in this Standard format mm. and in this draft format is, you know, basically dead. <laughs> 
that, that's the other thing too is even if there were some big standard tournaments coming down the pipeline in a few months there's going to be a new set there are going to be new cards and attention will be elsewhere so this is not quite the the dead format of like you know Javier winning with the Chain Roller deck just as Standard is about to rotate in like two weeks. It's not quite at that extreme, um, but it does feel like a weird time capsule of a tournament almost, where the 100 or so of us who were playing in the tournament, we had a good reason to care about Standard, and I hope it was fun enough to watch from the outside, uh, but I can't really tell people in good faith that they should be caring about Standard more because <laughs> there just aren't reasons to at this point. Yeah, I mean, the the Javier format uh, also specifically was at the tail end of like a million months of everyone playing the same trash over and over again. This was at least like new and fresh and we didn't quite know what to expect. Yes, uh, so I will sum up uh, my tournament with the stories of two rounds, which I think really captured the entire experience for me. Uh, so my my draft on, on day one, I have... A kind of a, a weirdo blue-red spell deck. So I, my pack one pick one is Decton Dragon, uh, which card I'm very happy to open, kind of uh, bridging between the two best colors, arguably. And then if I'm in red, it's going to be quite easy, actually, to splash at least the black half of that. Uh, and in turn, whatever cards the black half uh, obtains from my opponent's deck, because uh, red has all of the colorless fixing, as well as Red Cap Thief and Flicker Coin at common, and those are two of the, the more underrated cards, uh, in my view. Uh, so, very happy to open off with that. Kind of a weirdo draft where uh, I go back and forth. Uh, I'm in mostly mono-red early on, uh, but it's pretty apparent the blue is open, and so that becomes my my default second color until proven otherwise, and it, it's it's never proven otherwise. And then I open uh, Irredeemed Recruiter in pack two, and then uh, the Goose Mother in pack three. And so I end up essentially in blue-red five-color adventures with like a little spell sub-theme going on, which uh, was more coherent than it sounded and, and played out uh, better than advertised. But in any case, I get to round three after two rounds of non-games where I win against uh, Andre Strasky and non-games where I lose uh, in round two against uh, someone else. And my round three is against Reduke, uh, who I know is on a kind of middling Boros deck, uh, just generically good Boros stuff, uh, which is not a place I want to be in this format. And uh, after listening to his quick review, not a place that I think he wants to be either necessarily, but you you make do with what you have. And so I win a pretty easy game one. I He just runs me over uh, quickly uh, game two. And then game three is an all-timer for me. It's one of those games that I know I will be remembering and kicking myself for uh, five or ten years from now. So I, I come out pretty strong and that never really changes i never really feel behind and i'm just building up my board making good trades drawing cards and we get to the point where i can play my hearth elemental off uh, from exile play my imminent recruiter uh from exile after getting full value from the the night half and then make a gigantic attack which is going to decimate his board and either kill him outright or leave him in a very low life total so he sits there he does the math for a long time and eventually he's able to uh survive at one blocking uh trading off with my two vigilant knights from recruiter in the process so i i'm now tapped out with no blockers and he has exactly uh the double strike adventure archon's glory and a roll token to kill me from exactly 15 we're needing uh all three uh, of those cards and so what so it's a, an amazing finish which i'm not even i can't be that sad to lose to and one takeaway from that would be oh well i just did my thing and he he had to have this exact combination of three things, but I'd seen all three of those cards in the previous games. He wasn't 
doing much with what he had in his hand. So either I could probably afford to be more cautious, or he's going to have something like some combination of these that I need to be playing around. Um, and it just, it, it would make sense that it would be something like this. And so I, I'm left kind of reeling from that. And this is where the tournament, it's not over, right? But the difference between 2-1 and 1-2 coming out of that first draft, both uh, record-wise and uh, hashtag momentum-wise, uh, is pretty stark. And he, he, I mean, he was perfectly pleasant about it and reassured me that he probably would not have played around it either. But he would have known to, and I think probably would have. And I, that it, it really emphasized the difference between the people at his level and the, the the Simons and the Nathans and so on, and then the rest of us, especially in this tournament where like half of us got here just by spiking one thing. And in some people's cases, that was just spiking a random RC, which may be less competitive than the average like mid-sized tournament versus the people who got here because of course they're going to get their, their, their read or their Simon or, you know, they're, they're the, the people at the top of the game. I, I know I will dwell on that, even though, you know, if, if I scroll through my Twitter feed from, from the weekend, I see other people who I know are much better than me also talk about all the, uh, the worst mistakes they were making over the course of the weekend. And I also made arguably worse mistakes in the later rounds uh, as well. But that that's a kind of mistake which just the, the framing of it and the outcome of it uh, and how quickly you get punished and it hits you in the face. Like that that's the kind of thing which you you know you're gonna remember. And so I just hope I can forget about it before I'm uh I, I'm 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 too old at least. So what you're saying is if you had instead won that round, you would have gone thirteen and one. I'm not quite saying that, but I'm also not... Uh, no, I am not saying that. Uh, let's not be, okay. be too extreme about it. But I, that that really... It was all also a precursor for some of the other things that happened to me too. So, for example, um, one of my standard rounds against Willy Adel, who also top-aided on the domain deck, which we, we'd mentioned the complete lack of any useful public information. One of the pieces we did have was Willy was just doing well in all the challenges with his domain deck, and the way that the online metagames for these smaller formats work these days is if someone does well with a deck well everyone just copy and paste that deck and then it's all over the challenges next week and then that just becomes this self-perpetuating cycle until something happens to uh, to grab their attention instead and so willie had essentially made a good list of this deck public and just almost challenge people to defy him and to beat him anyway and they we we didn't so he just top eight again um but uh so I, i'm facing willie on on his domain deck and game one was very long very intricate and i know i could have won that game there were several spots where a different fork in the road leads to different outcomes and i i could have uh, squeezed it through but very tough to navigate and i'm still not sure what the correct move was uh, i asked him after the fact he wasn't quite sure uh, either but we we work it to the point where he resolves his black virtue and i'm able to uh Urta to takanuma back my urtai and then otawara back my urtai through his sunfall and so I'm, i get to the point where he is at three his virtue can get back his seed shark but then i can untap urtai the seed shark and attack with my three two disturbed Danic for lethal and so on that final turn i even draw plaza of heroes so if the card he draws is leyline binding i have a way to fizzle that so i think great i'm in the clear so i urtai his sea shark and the card the one card he draws is the one copy of herd migration left in his deck so he's able to cycle that gain three life put him up to six and then solve for my board away again and now i'm just completely dead from a spot where uh, i was about to uh you know snatch victory from the jaws of defeat and then games two game three i again i this stuff I could have done differently, and that was a match which I think other people in my seat could have won. But weirdly, I'm not beating myself up as much about that one because, it, it, firstly, it's less clear exactly where the mistake was. 
but also the the optics of it and the presentation weren't quite as stark as they were in that, that match against Reed. So I think it, it is as much uh, psychological as anything else. I'm thinking back to like, what was the story you had last Pro Tour where you were the thefter instead of the thefty of the game wins? Yes, and yes. So like, I don't know. It's hard to tell which way these things are going to break. And I, I'm reminded of a, a classic Pat Chapin story about how like on some degree uh, mistakes are a form of variance. And like, this is a thing that chess players talk about too, where like sometimes your opponents will be making the mistakes and you will be gifted the wins. And sometimes the reverse happens and it's just kind of like, I don't know. It's you're supposed to make it better for yourself by like doing that. But at the end of the day, like sometimes the alignment of those things is sort of random. Yes. Uh, so all of that made it clear. This was not going to be my day on one level. My sloppy play opened up a very narrow window for me to get punished and i did get punished when there were so many games right where you make a mistake and it turns a 100 percent lock game into a 95 percenter and you you win it anyway because that's what happens 95 percent of the time i guess it's good on some level that uh the karma actually came through and i got punished but you know i if you want to think about it in those terms maybe that's how you console yourself in any case it was pretty clear this was not going to be my day and it was going to be a struggle to get any more uh, wins on the scoreboard, but I managed to get one uh, before all was said and done, because uh, have you heard the saga of one uh, Federico Verono? I will let you fill in the blanks uh, as the official... Um, let's see. <laughs> you were closer to it, and if you tell the story, I am not responsible for it. Yes, uh, so Federico Verono was the, the winner of one of the European uh, RCs who was dis uh, disqualified from Pro Tour Barcelona after being caught cheating for palming cards out of his own graveyard. Uh, a kind of classic old-school cheat, which, uh, you know, I I'm sure many people have stories of being on the wrong end of that over time. Uh, but Carl Sarab actually caught him in action there and wrote up a, a blog post about his side of, of things. And it seemed like heading into this tournament, the obvious consequences of that would follow through and he would not be allowed to play in Worlds because if you're confident enough to disqualify him for cheating, uh, theory suggests uh, you should be not <laughs> allowing him at the highest level event in the, the Magic Calendar. And it seemed like based on some, what turned out to be dodgy intel from some other Italians that, yeah, he, he was uh, going to be banned even though that had not uh, populated through to the, the list of invited players or what have you, uh, and he was not going to be there. Turns out, uh, we, we get there to the room on Friday, and uh, and Verona is there. And even if you've not met him before, you you know who he is instantly because he does have this like a uh, like where's Waldo vibe almost in like this kind of criminal way where like you you you, you see his you you see his the, the overall aesthetic of someone and you're like okay that's the guy. And I I know it's it's kind of a toxic thing to say, and you know he's not listening to this, but my friends who also look like where's Waldo villains are. But I you know but bear that in mind uh, for now at least. Well, um, like, let's so, be real. It's Vegas. There's like 17 of those people anywhere you look. But anyways, continue. Right. It, it is a, a hive of uh, of uh, scumbags and a den of iniquity and, and, and everything else. But in any case, so I look over in round three and he's paired against Carl Sarab again. Um, and I know that Carl is going to be on high alert. I assume that Verona is not going to be daring enough to try and just do the same thing again and there are judges around watching and i did i did think about uh 
once it seemed like uh, he was going to be allowed to compete, just posting in the Discord that, hey, for a very reasonable fee, I will be willing to stand and watch your matches after mine is concluded, just to make sure that no uh, no, no handiwork is, is occurring here. Um, but uh, Carl manages to to win that match, and I God, God only knows what his attitude would have been if he'd lost. I think he would have been quite justified in tilting off uh, over that one. Uh, but... What that means is uh, that after I throw against Reed, Verona is now in the one-two bracket with me. So, I look at my pairing for round four, first round of Constructed, and it is, who else? Federico Verona. Uh, so we go, we play our match, and it's, it's back and forth, it's close-ish. Uh, I end up emerging victorious. And I, I kind of want to say something or do something, but I, I'm unsure like how aggro about it I want to be, until he starts... Uh, tilting off himself about how lucky I got and so on and at that point uh, a switch just kind of flips in my brain because I, I, I would say you are the one who was lucky to be here and not just in the oh wow we're also lucky to be here sense I mean as in you should not have been even allowed in the building and the fact that you're here at all is a disgrace and a blemish on the tournament so I get out of my pocket the foil side of hand which I drafted uh, only a few hours before and ask him to sign it which it takes me a while to like put the pieces together of, of what the implications are and then just kind of like uh, sputters and uh, says how ridiculous it is that I would even ask and don't believe everything you hear and then and then walks off. Um, but I, I felt like someone needed to say it and if it wasn't going to be Scott Larry, it had to be one of us. And so, yeah, in my own way, I, I was able to at least uh, leave a mark on the tournament there. Did he at least, like, did he get to the point where he's about to put the pen on it or no? Sadly, I mean, one of the, the many downsides of using Melee is I couldn't ask him to sign the slip. But, uh, you know, I had to leave that one for another time. We will see if this saga continues in Chicago, if he's actually allowed to play there, or if uh, Justice uh, finally asserts herself before then. But uh, hopefully this will be the end of that, uh, you know, that, that rather unedifying uh, tale. Yeah, I, I would really hope so. Um, yeah, that's beyond comprehension. I don't know how you get caught blatantly cheating at a Pro Tour and then show up to the next major event. I just... <laughs> Also, doing it in Vegas is just, like, there. there's, like, an entire level of extra, just, like, what the hell are you doing? Like, uh, yeah, I uh, I cheated at a card game, and then I went to Vegas to play it. It's like, um... I, I know that more broadly, uh, other people who have found themselves no longer welcome in Magic have found a home uh, in Vegas. So may maybe this is just where these kind of things occur. But in any case, uh, on that happy note... Uh, that will that that concludes my story of the tournament and hopefully his story in uh, competitive magic for the foreseeable future. I know that uh, you will be on your own uh, extended travels uh, here before too long, so I, I will find some kind of uh, Ari and or Jarvis correspondent to fill in the gaps there. Uh, but until then, uh, you can find our content on uh, Star City Games and CFB slash TCG Player, respectively. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Dom and Javier and at ARMLX. You can find the podcast on Twitter at dominaria underscore pod or over on patreon at patreon.com slash dominaria's underscore judgment along with all of the show notes for every episode and uh, a lot more besides and you can find a lot of uh tall tales and uh other nonsense going on in the uh discord as well uh, that's been uh popping off uh since i returned and while i was away so that's been very fun to see uh so you can be part of that experience too and we will find some kind of experience to deliver to you next week uh but until then uh take care everyone <laughs>